Our call to worship this morning comes from Psalm chapter 148. So before we praise the Lord in word or in song, let's praise his name in word. And it says this many, many times, starting with verse 1. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest, uh, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created, and he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures in all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word. Mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds. Kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord. For his name alone is exalted, his majesty is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for his people, praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him. Praise the Lord. Well, we made it into a new year. I like that word new, don't you? Well, most of the time I like the word new. <laughs> I appreciated the opening comments of Pastor Mark. It's amazing how God works everything out. He had no idea what I was going to be speaking on, and uh, I had no idea what he would say. But, you know, as we think of new things, we all like new things, right? I like my new tie. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, not everything new is necessarily good. However, there's something else that I like besides new things, and that is I like to make lists. And I don't know how you are, but, uh, you know, at the beginning of the year, we might not actually make a, a literal list of things, but in our minds, sometimes we make lists that this year I hope to fill in the blank, right? Or blanks. There's a passage of scripture that I'd like just to, to refer to just as an opening here. Uh, in the book of Romans, chapter 11, where we read these verses, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him, and through him, and to him, for all things, to him be glory forever. Amen. Now that sounds like a good benediction, doesn't it? You want me to just do that and just leave? <laughs> but I recall a number of years ago when we were still in Brazil, I had the privilege of teaching in a small Bible institute, and one of the courses I taught was on what we call theology proper. It's basically uh, an introduction to God in a very broad, general sense. And my very first day, I started out by saying, you know, <clears throat> we can never know God fully. It's impossible for us to know God fully. He is infinite. He is eternal. He is without limits, and we are not. However, he has chosen to reveal many things to us, and he has done that through his word. And so I would like us to consider, I'd like to share with you some thoughts in regards to new things, and this is a list that, of course, is not exhaustive. I'm hoping to be able to get through it, 
Some of you that may have been here the last time I preached might remember I went about 10 minutes over. Hopefully I won't do that today. But anyway, we'll start out and see where we end up, all right? So if we could have the PowerPoint up and running there. The first principle or thought that I'd like us to consider, and by the way, none of this is new to any of us, okay? But review is good. Review is good. And right now, with the beginning of the new year, I think for me, I like to review. I think we should always be re-examining our lives before the Lord and making sure that we are where we should be. So I've entitled this, I thought about saying prophetic certainties for the new year, but I don't want anybody to think that I'm a prophet or the son of a prophet or I'm, you know, foretelling something. That's not it. It's already here in Scripture. But I can say they are assurances of the year. The first one is that the Bible, God's Word, will have all the answers that we will actually need this year. God's Word supplies for us all the, all the needed answers that we will have for whatever we might face. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. I would like to reiterate something that Pastor Mark already mentioned, that is Bible reading. Now, I know we all have... At some point or other in our lives, struggle with having, you know, a set Bible time for reading and so on and so forth. We're busy people, and sometimes we get it done, sometimes we don't. But I would like to encourage you to take one of those uh, plans out there and try to follow it with God's, God's help. Now, interesting, in this verse in Deuteronomy, it talks about things that are revealed. Uh, this includes the law, God's word, with all of its promises and threats, with all of its blessings and judgments. These are made known to us in his written word, and we're not going to know them unless we are in the written word. The secret things, that's the things that we don't know, that perhaps we may never truly know. We, we can look at these as the details of perhaps our future life, including this year. This might be the year the Lord returns. Amen. I'm, I'm ready for him. But most likely, these secret things refers to the specific way in which God will carry out his will in the future in our lives right here and now. We are all concerned about God's will for our lives, aren't we? We all want to know what God's will is for our lives in regards to this detail, to that detail, and we kind of sometimes plan a little bit ahead and run ahead of the Lord. Some things remain secret to us, the details. Now, I've already read Romans eleven thirty three. 33. It says, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom of knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. Now, if we focus just on that, we think, what's the use of trying? Right? If he's beyond understanding, what's the use of trying? Well, I'd like to give you a balance to that verse, okay? In 1 Corinthians 2, verse 16, we read, For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? Now listen carefully what it says next. But we have the mind of Christ. 
Now, I don't know if you want to consider that as a promise or just a declaration. You say, well, how can we have the mind of Christ? We just read, just read in Romans that, you know, he's inscrutable. He's beyond our understanding. Well, what does it mean when it says we have the mind of Christ? God has granted believers, we believers are allowed by the word and by the spirit of God that abides in us, who, by the way, operates by means of the word, to know the thoughts of their Lord. We can know the thoughts of God to a certain point, what God has chosen and revealed to us. We might think of the incident that occurred on the, the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, where it says towards the end of that uh, report, it says, then he, referring to Jesus, opened their minds to understand the scriptures. God will open our minds that we might understand the scriptures. <clears throat> our responsibility as God's people isn't to try to pry open the doors of the future, but to obey God's will here and now, what we know. It's not necessary to know all of God's secrets, but it is essential that we obey what the Lord has clearly revealed to us already. Now, I've got another whole sermon that I could preach on that one, but I'll refrain. Uh, next one. Well, okay, just in case, in case you have any doubts about what we're talking about, here are the verses that I just read, right? We can know the mind of Christ to a certain point as we rely upon his word and the Holy Spirit. The second thought or principle is our God will hear our prayers for help. Psalm 34, 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. You say, ah, oh, amen. Yes, Lord, I want to be delivered of all my troubles. Well, hold on a second, all right? Hold on just a second. <laughs> this verse says that the Lord always hears our cries to him for help. But how and when he chooses to respond will not always be the way we would like it to be. Interesting in this passage in Psalm, verse 18, the next verse after this, it says, the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and save such as have a contrite spirit. We see in that verse two qualities, two characteristics that God requires. Uh, we might say these are descriptions of the right attitude that God desires of the righteous. It kind of defines what a righteous person is. Who is righteous? Well, first of all, it's those who have called on the name of the Lord to be saved. And we have been declared righteous when we do that. Now, we know in practice we're not always righteous, and yet our position is confirmed in this. So it describes the right attitude that God desires of the righteous and to which God responds. Uh, one commentator referred to this as dependent disciples. I like that, dependent disciples. And then verse 19 of Psalm 34 seems in one sense to contradict what, what verse 17 says. Verse 19 says, many are the, are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. 
Now, again, considering the context, it says that God delivers them out of them all. One commentator wrote about this by saying, the side-by-side realities of human persecution and divine preservation once again vividly depict our life, depict real life in the real world. Uh, This is not pie uh, pie in the sky, by and by type of stuff, okay? This is real stuff. And God is saying, yes, I will be there. Uh, Other familiar passages that kind of refer to the same idea. In James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, we said, Count it all joy, brethren, when you fall into diverse temptations, because the trial of your faith, the testing of your faith, produces patience or steadfastness. But in the midst of all this, we have to come to an understanding of God's perspective in regards to deliverance and troubles. It says, and he delivers them out of all their troubles. We have to understand how God perceives deliverance and troubles. You might recall in Daniel chapter 3, the story of the the three friends of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, how they were being threatened to be thrown into the fiery furnace. And listen to what they said to King Nebuchadnezzar. The great King Nebuchadnezzar says, we're going to throw you in if you don't bow. And they they said the following, Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Wow. What confidence. Well, did they get thrown into the fiery furnace? They certainly did. Did God deliver them? He certainly did. Now, just hypothetically, supposing that they had been killed, would God have delivered them? Absolutely. One way or another, they would be delivered from the king's hand, whether it be through death or through living. God's perspective of deliverance isn't always our perspective, as we see in the the example here before us. God may not always provide relief on the occasion or at the moment that we think we we need it, but he will give the strength to be able to bear the testing and sooner or later, he will deliver us out of all our troubles. When will that happen? When he takes us to glory. We will one day be delivered out of all of our troubles. And if we focus our minds on that this year, I hope that it will help me to face whatever might, might be coming down the pike. The third one. The Holy Spirit is still capable of changing the world. <clears throat> now, we've been through a couple of interesting years. Uh, you might have other terminology you'd prefer to use, but we won't go there. Acts 1.8 says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Think back in your life. Look at what he has done in your life in the past or in the life of that person for whom you are concerned that you thought was beyond reach. I could give you several illustrations. But interesting, it says here, you will receive power. What power? Well, the power of the Holy Spirit. 
This is a concept which has become extremely distorted and unfortunately in our day and time in some circles. In its primary context, however, this was the power for one thing in the context of this verse, and that was to become witnesses. The power to become witnesses. Now, who, what is a witness? A witness is one who tells the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 16, verses 13 and 14 says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So here's what the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, will do for us. He will guide us. He will speak. He will declare to us. He will glorify God, and he will take what is what is God's and declare it to us. And how does he do that? Through the word, by means of the Holy Spirit. John 14, 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. All that you need, all that I need is right here in front of us. We are called upon and empowered by the Holy Spirit to be a witness to the world by proclaiming, by declaring, by preaching, by teaching, by defending, by contending for the faith, or by simply living out your faith in Jesus Christ before the world. There's a lot of different ways that we can declare Christ to others. And we have the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to do that. Christ has promised to build his church. This is not our church, folks. This is his church. Christ has promised to build his church, and he has chosen us to help him in this building. And he has empowered us by the Holy Spirit so that even the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. If we look around the world at uh, what's happening here in our own country and around the world, we think, wow, boy, can things get any worse? Well, uh, it probably will. <laughs> It probably will, <laughs> but that's okay, because we have the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. God will still fulfill His promises. God will still fulfill His promises this year. Numbers twenty three nineteen. God is not a man that He should lie, or a son of man that He should change His mind. Has He said, and will He not do it? Or has He spoken, and will He not fulfill it? Now, those two questions are rhetorical, of course. We, we know the answer, right? Of course he's going to fulfill his word. God is totally unchanging. God is totally unchangeable. And thus his word and his character are completely reliable. We can rely on him. We can trust him. We can trust all of these things. Psalm 145, 17, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind or holy in all his works. There is never injustice or unfairness with God. And he is righteous in all his actions. We need to be careful not to accuse God of being unfair. And we do that in many ways sometimes, don't we? If we're honest. But Lord, why this? Why now? Why here? <laughs> there is no injustice 
or unrighteousness in the Lord. There, are, there still are only two paths from which to choose. Psalm 1.6 says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Two paths, the way of the righteous, the way of the wicked. Some today would call this unloving. Some would call this intolerant. Some would accuse or so far, go so far as to say that God is exclusivistic. Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. The truth is, folks, God is exclusive. And he does not tolerate sin in his presence. Those are true facts. Those are biblical facts. However, God is never unloving. Now, whatever accusations the world might level at God or at Christians, God is never unloving. He is ever merciful. His grace is abundant. The Lord is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This year, may God help us to Enjoy the path that we are on. Praise the Lord for the fact that we have been declared righteous, but also seek others that have yet to come to him. Which brings us to our next one. God will still love sinners like us. Amen. John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. It was never God's original plan to condemn men. That was not in his original plan. His greatest desire is to save men. So who is actually guilty of condemning men? Well... Verse 18 and verse 36 of John 3 goes on to say that it's man himself that condemns himself by refusing to believe. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Man cannot point a finger at God and said, it's all your fault. Uh-uh. It, is, it is man alone by the fact that he has rebelled against God it is his, if we, might, if we could use the terminology, the unforgivable sin. Now, I realize that that's a, a whole theological issue, but the truly, un, in my way of seeing things, the truly unforgivable sin is rejecting Christ. Seven, Jesus will save whoever will come to him. Acts 2.21, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What an invitation. 
Now, I look around the auditorium here, and I recognize just about everybody. But I have to admit that I, don't, I can't see into your hearts. I'd like to believe that everyone here has trusted the Lord. And if that's true, praise the Lord. But if by some chance you're present here this morning, and you've never really come to that place, let me encourage you to consider this invitation. What does it mean to call on Christ? What does it mean to call on Christ? <clears throat> well, it's to place your total confidence and trust in him. It's to save you from the penalty of your sins. It means to totally entrust your life into his hands for now and for all eternity. By the way, when we trust Christ as our Savior, we're promised eternal life. When does that eternal life start? We're already, we're already in it, folks. We've already started that eternal life. The moment we're saved, eternal life begins. Now, the full impact of that won't really be enjoyed until we are in glory. And he, Christ, will never refuse to re or reject anyone who comes to him. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out, says Christ in John 6, 37. He will never cast them out. Number eight. Jesus will not forget his friends. John 14, two through three, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, would I have not told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. He will do this. This is his plan. We can count on this for this year. This could be the year that he will come for us. This promise made by Christ more than 2,000 years ago has not been forgotten by God. He has not forgotten us. He, is, he has not abandoned us, and neither will he ever abandon us. If at any point in our lives, in our walk with the Lord, it seems like God is far away, it is not because he has distanced himself from us. Uh-uh. It is that we have distanced ourselves from him. We need to ever be on the alert. We need to return, if necessary, repent and restore, and he will restore us as he sees true repentance and change in our lives. And then the last one, God will never give up on us. Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Uh, another version says confident. We can be fully, fully assured regarding this statement without any doubt whatsoever. The, the words good work, he who began a good work in you is a reference to salvation. This, this only appears two times in the New Testament, and that's here and in Galatians chapter 3, verse 3. But it's referring to salvation, and it's here when he talks about he has begun it, he will perform it, he will bring it to completion. 
this is not necessarily suggesting that our salvation is somehow incomplete, that we need to do something more to complete the salvation. There are those who believe that, and I pity them. Because as I understand Scripture, we have God's assurance, our security. Christ finished the task of obtaining, of purchasing our salvation on the cross. He finished it. He himself said, it is finished. He completed that. But the we are in a position of being saved eternally. We are eternally secured. That will never change. However, we will only truly experience the full and final benefits of that position when we leave this life and all of its temporal limitations. Now, I'm not in any hurry to die physically. Uh, I imagine probably none of you here are either. <laughs> Hopefully not. However, we will tr truly not gain the greatest benefit from our salvation until we are in Christ's presence. God will complete this process. God will complete this process. In fact, God states it in so many ways that it is a, a thing that is so certain that it's as if it has already occurred. It's as if we are already in his presence, enjoying that position to its maximum. Now, as we've gone through these, these thoughts, did you happen to notice how many times the words will and shall appeared? God will do this. He shall do this. Assurances. God has spoken. God speaks every day. Are we listening? Are we in his word, listening to his voice? Are we allowing the word to go into our minds and allow the Holy Spirit then to take that and apply it in our everyday lives. God has spoken. Were you listening? Will you listen this, this year? Now, again, this is just a, a small list. We could, we could offer probably several hundred or thousand more. But hopefully some of these thoughts will help us to focus in as we begin this new year once again on the, the greatest promises and assurances that we can have and that we need. All that we need is right here. Do we know every detail of what's, what this year holds for us? No. Those are God's secrets. Let's not be so concerned about that. Let's do what we know God has told us to do day by day, and as we do that, he will direct the details. So my final question, will you trust God's word during 2022? Will you be in it? Will you meditate on it? Will you study it? Will you contemplate it? Will you apply it to your life? It has everything we need. It has everything we need. And may God grant us the courage and the strength, the knowledge, the wisdom to take advantage of what we have. And trust that he will deal with the details in his perfect way and in his perfect timing. Let's pray.
Gracious Father, we are so thankful for these great assurances from your word. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for the written word that we have before us. Thank you for the abiding Holy Spirit that will guide us through your word. And as situations, experiences, circumstances, life in general takes place, might we always be reflecting on you and trusting you to guide us each step of the way. This year, might we glorify you in our everyday lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our God.